0: So, uh, so the, the question for today that we received is, how does Jeremiah 29.11 apply to the body of Christ? Uh, so if you uh, do not know this verse or it's just been a while, it might be brand new to the Bible and you're like, what in the world is that? Uh, Jeremiah is an Old Testament book, an Old Testament prophet. We call him uh, in the book itself one of the major prophets because it's one of the longer prophets uh, in contrast to the shorter uh, in length minor prophets, uh, 12 of those at the very end of the Old Testament, but Jeremiah is one of the major ones. Uh, the verse is, is this, Jeremiah 29 11 says, it's God speaking, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so basically what we're going to do today is just uh, preach this sermon. It's going to be a sermon on what this verse means for the life of the church. That was the actual question, but uh, really we'll unpack this here in, in context. It is a, it's a great verse some of you even uh, you're aware of this coming, and you've mentioned to me it's kind of it's a big verse for you, kind of personally, for different reasons, and so and, and that's great. It is a very uh, for you, churched people especially. I mean, you grew up in a churched home, uh, very often referenced verse, maybe the most Instagrammable verse in the history of social media. Um, I, you know, we just know there's no study on that, but I'm guessing it's probably the case um, with a nice back selfie maybe too on it, but. Um, Closest I could find, but yeah, Google "mountain" in, in this verse, and you'll get about a thousand of these things. But anyway, actually, Peter Carlson mentioned before first service that he's gotten three graduation notices from uh, graduates. Where's Peter? Yeah, from grad, from grads, right? That, that have that verse in the graduate or graduation announcement. So three already this spring. So uh, probably from church homes. But anyway, so yeah, it's it's out there. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven probably. The chances of one of you having a tattoo in this room is probably higher than uh, your average verse uh, with, with this on it, too, which is great. But, all right, so on one level, you can look at a verse like this. Just a couple of introductory comments on this before we dive in. You can look at a verse like this and say, and these are great questions you should ask, especially when God speaks. Ask about his character, what, what he's like. You know, so we can, we can look at a verse like this and say, just with this verse, Wow, God is very kind. He's very generous. He wants to give us things. This verse gets at that. He's not a killjoy. Or maybe your thought is, he know, this implies he knows me or he knows us. We'll talk more about that later. The you here is plural, not singular. So be careful to over-individualize this right away. In the, we don't have this in English. Our second-person plural and first-person plural looks the same. It's you, unless you're from the South, and it's y'all. But for us Midwesterners... It's the same thing, so but it's a, it's a second-person plural. It's you together. I have a plan for you, my people, Israel here in the Old Testament. We'll apply this to, this to the corporate church here uh, before we do uh, to ourselves individually a little bit later on. But we still might say, He, he knows me. It's an appropriate takeaway here. He knows me. God, God is In theology, we say God is imminent. He's transcendent. He's way out there, untouchable. We can't see him, and yet he's imminent. He's an imminent God. He's here. He's closer than we think. In the Christian's lives, he's, he's within us. He makes his home uh, within our hearts. He calls us his, his, his temple as a church, an individual Christian's bodies, his dwelling place. And so it's a, it's a fascinating, almost impossible to comprehend thing. But we can, we can affirm those things. God's kind, generous, not a killjoy. He knows me. He knows us as a church. And we might say, like Gandalf to Frodo, that is an encouraging thought, isn't it? And, and even right there, we have something, you know, to, to hold on to. Or on the other side of things, maybe you might think, God, I don't feel like God is seeking my welfare. As a Christian or not, but like as a Christian, I don't feel like God is prospering me like he's seeking my welfare. As, as I look at other non-Christians' li- christian lives and they're happier, they're more comfortable, they have more money than I. So how in the world am I supposed to understand a verse like this? If God wants to prosper me, why isn't he doing it? if we understand it that way. So, as a secondary question then, or kind of a follow-up, we'll look at this especially today. What does it mean to prosper or for God to seek our welfare biblically? This is crucial for us to understand as Christians, and those of you, again, who are not Christians, understanding the gospel. You know, we see God speak this way. We have to define these words. We have to understand in context what they mean, or we're going to really arrive at some pretty dangerous theological conclusions pretty quickly if we don't. So. As popular as this verse is it's commonly misapplied or even more commonly I think cheapened and so if if you, if you like this verse I mean the goal here is not to like you know completely change the meaning from what you probably walked in um, you know thinking it, it's it's more to add to it I, I want to hopefully at the end you'll like this verse even more you know so if you if you call it your quote unquote life verse um, or whatever uh, it, it, then then I hope it I hope it's uh, hope it's dialed up a bit you know not completely and I want to just you know, destroy your dreams here, uh, either. But um, but hopefully it, you'll you'll get a, a a greater view in context of what's really going on, and there's a lot more uh, than than meets the eye. So what so we're going to do today is walk through this verse, but in context. And context is layered, especially with a verse or a prophetic oracle we call them like this. And so when we say Jeremiah twenty nine eleven has context to it, we mean it on three levels. And so I'll walk through these three things pretty quickly, but. Uh, These are really important to get before we dive in. The first is this kind of greater biblical or historical or existential uh, context for humans. And so you could say any singular verse in the Bible, the whole Bible is the context to that one verse on on one level. So we're basically saying that. But a bit more specifically, the historical context here and what the Bible is saying, not just about Israel but but about humanity, is humanity is exiled, separated from God because we've self-deified, we've made our, ourselves many gods instead of, instead of like enjoying him and caring about him and worshiping him. We went our own way, we sinned against him and others, and we worshiped ourselves. That, that's the core of sin. There's more to say about the doctrine of sin than that. That's essentially how the book begins with Adam and Eve, the first two human beings who do that, and then we're all born from them. We inherit their sinful tendencies to do all those things I just listed out. And because of that, this is our narrative. We're exiled from God. We can't see Him. We don't feel Him. Uh, we experience the weightiness of the fallenness of our own hearts, and our immediate contexts and the world every day. And so we, we feel, even as Christians, even though that's not true anymore because of Christ. And we'll come to that. We can we can still feel uh, the weight of this in, I mean, just anything really under the sun. That's the first piece. Going down, so going, going from big picture to smaller picture in, in order here, the second context piece is the literary context. Judah uh, is a tribe, so Judah is a tribe of Israel, so just think the people of Israel's impending captivity in Babylon and an exile from, from the promised land, which, which represents God. And, and so what this means is that Israel is giving us a glimpse of humanity's fallen condition in being separated from God. Israel's a microcosm of the human experience. Or think about it this way. Israel's story here is a further retelling of the story of humankind. It's a further retelling of the story of humankind, all of us exile types. It's just showing that off like under a microscope, and it it theologizes about it for us to learn more about, like objectively, but also subjectively because it's our story as well. And so Jeremiah then, as it says here, is a prophet. God's speaking through him, and, and Jeremiah is theologizing about this exile. This, this is all happening around 586 B.C. is when uh, deportation or exile kind of proper happens, when Babylon sacks Jerusalem, and then there's these waves of deportations that happen. And Jeremiah is in Jerusalem speaking to that, theologizing about that, uh, kind of bringing condemnation and saying this is happening and or it's going to happen more fully, but then promising that God's going to bring his people back not because they've, you know, spent 70 years of purgatory and, and their, their sins are paid off because of, like, waiting, but simply because God's gracious and good and kind. He's going to bring them back in 70 years. That, that term, that time frame is super important, so have that in mind. Jeremiah says throughout the book, 70 years of captivity, and then God will bring you back to the land, which is the same thing, really, is saying to him. He's going to bring them back to, to himself. So... That's the literary context. The more micro-context, the third, the third and final piece here for context, uh, is so more immediately right around Jeremiah 29, is a false prophet named Hananiah, speaks out of turn, predicts God's blessing too quickly and uh, too, too rashly. Basically saying, everything is going to be okay. In two short years, the whole thing will end. And so so on one level, the timing's way off. So notice that, and we'll come back to this. But Jeremiah says, 70 years, speaking on God's behalf. Hananiah the false prophet says, actually, it's way better. It's only two. I've got a deal for you, you know. It's only two years, and we'll bring you back. Just hold your breath for a couple of years, and you guys will come back, and things are going to be just just dandy. So the beginning of chapter 28, summarizing a few verses here, begins with this. Hananiah prophesies to the people of Israel and says, it's going to be okay, Within a matter of two years, God's going to bring you back from Babylon. And he uses this phrase, God will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. And so let's pick up here in verse 5, reading through part of 28, and then the paragraph within which we find verse 11 in chapter 29. And we'll come back and talk about all of it. All right, so verse 5. Then the prophet Jeremiah, so after Hananiah says his piece, Jeremiah spoke to Hananiah the prophet directly in the presence of the priests, And all the people who are standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all of the exiles. Yet, hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war and famine and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. Then skipping down to verse 15. Then Jeremiah later says to the prophet Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. In that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. Now, Jeremiah 9, 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, this is Jeremiah speaking again, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. All right, so with this text in red here and kind of in mind, this is the more immediate micro-context that, that um, I was talking about, but with the greater kind of biblical context in mind as well, let's, let's talk about Jeremiah 29. What does it mean? What's it mean for the church? What's it mean for the life of the church? How does it relate as kind of a part to the greater whole of Scripture? What I want to do today is look at chapter 28 first as this kind of additional piece that uh, in one sense it's kind of separate from, the, you know, from what 29 is actually getting at, but in another sense it's not. It's kind of one oracle, one prophecy, and it serves as this backdrop against which Jeremiah 29 shines. I think all the brighter and we can have you know fresh understanding here. So the, the first part then, so we'll come to 29 a little bit later, or the verse in, my, or the verse in focus today. But the first part is this. False prophecy, so topically here, False prophecy, understanding that as promising good too quickly or rashly with little room for suffering. So understanding false prophecy through the lens of Hananiah here in chapter 28 as promising good too quickly or rashly with little room for suffering. And this is actually what makes this whole narrative so interesting. In fact, you might just be scratching your head there thinking, What exactly did he say that was too wrong, Hananiah? Because it sounded like he was right on par with what Jeremiah has been saying so far in in this book. But that's what makes it so kind of confusing and interesting. The false prophet, Hananiah, kind of gets it right. You know, God does, as it says here, God does intend to graciously bring his people back. That's what the false prophet was saying. So what's the big deal? God does intend to bring his people back to himself and return him to them, that they might dwell with him again. All this by grace, because God is a God of love and uh, insistence, in a sense, that uh, sinners, people he's calling his own, dwell with him forever. But here's the thing. His timing's off, we mentioned that, but he speaks in his own accord, not God. So this is kind of a list of things that are wrong then. So it sounds right, but his timing's off, big time, 68 years off. The second piece, he's clearly speaking on his own accord. God is saying, I did not send this person. And as a prophet, it would have been hard to like, you know, not know that. You know, they, they heard God's voice audibly or just powerfully within them. And so he's, you know, he's a deceptive individual. But third, and this, this is really important, uh, this, this last piece here, he deviates, albeit ever so slightly, from the path of suffering and exile God intended for his people to take. And so as a bit of a sidebar here before we come back here to this, it, it, it's actually, as we think about false teaching, today in the church. and Actually, one of you asked about this. So this might be its own sermon later in the summer. You asked, how do we know what false teaching is? If they go, go to a new church someday, how do we know that they're teaching faithfully? And what's, what's true and false? What's kind of the ultimate designator? And so this is kind of a teaser to that in a way or touches on it a little bit. But this idea here, this is a great way to sniff out false prophecy and false teaching. And that is teaching that makes happiness and comfort the ultimate thing. Teaching that makes our happiness, our comfort, the ultimate kind of nucleus, so the ultimate thing, and it makes God's interests ultimately our personal physical welfare. You know, so, so they might say, false teachers, like, look at what Jeremiah twenty nine eleven says. Believe it, and it will be yours. God desires your physical prosperity above, above all things. Have you ever heard something like this, like this before? Maybe in books you've read or in, in the church or presuppositions you've had, or maybe this is currently where you're at. These are red flags, big time, big time. But you can see how attractive it is to people, right? I mean, think about Jeremiah and this, like, pro- this prof- prophesying duel, you know, of sorts, like Jeremiah and Hananiah prophesying. One is saying, 70 years, sin so bad that 70 years you'll be in exile and most of you won't come back. You'll die there. It's a long time. Maybe some infants who are being deported will come back, but most of you, pretty much all of you won't ever see this God-given promised land again. That's Jeremiah's message. 70 years. Then Ananias comes along, actually, it's only two. You know, who are people going to believe, right? Or who are you going to want who are you going to hope that's true, at least? In this case, the really hard teaching is true. The really easy teaching is false. This is a big deal. I mean, how many times does this come up, right, in, in our lives, or the church, or the New Testament, or Jesus' ministry, how many times does it say, and the teaching was too hard when Jesus spoke, and people left him never to follow him again, right? I mean, it's always this case. There's tons, I mean, we talk about the gospel, it means good news. So God does speak comfort, and God does speak prosperity in a type of way. We'll talk about that today, but timing's a big deal, and defining these terms is, is a huge deal as well. So Jeremiah's answer to Hananiah's, everything's going to be okay, is kind of like a, well, yes, he actually says, I hope that, I wish that was true. I wish it was two years. You know, he says amen, but then he qualifies it. So he basically says, yes, but not in the way you're saying and not in the time frame you're suggesting. We need to let God self-disclose, to clarify prophecy with his son Jesus in his way so that we don't make it about us too quickly. So a closer look here as to um, going back a bit, why Hananiah's prophecy, why was it condemned? God calls him a liar directly and in, in just this um, state of rebellion against him and a deceiver of men, a deceiver of people away from the truth. And so why, why is it condemned when it seemed like it's mostly kind of right? So, the, I mean, the initial answer to this is the timing's off. We already talked about that. But the, the idea of the timing being off, underlining that are, are theological ideas and related theological truths that I think are the ultimate cause, whereas this is kind of the, the first thing you see, the timing thing, but behind, that, behind the curtain are these other two big things. So the first is this. It just didn't take sin seriously enough. We've already said this, but, you know, he's saying things aren't that bad. Don't worry. I know you heard 70, but I'm saying two. Things won't be that bad. Or maybe some modern-day takes on this type of perspective and maybe some of these are filling your mind even right now, but here's a couple of of examples. Some modern day takes on like false Hananiah prophecy is I know you've heard the Bible say this about our sinful nature, that we're evil to the core, but that's too harsh. And God can't really think that, right? Or good news, there is no hell. I have an easier teaching for you. It's much easier, right? There's no hell. Everyone's going to be saved in the end, and, or if, if some people go to hell for a little bit of time, it'll only be like temporary and they'll, they'll be saved out of it. And in, in the end, there is no ultimate eternal hell, but only everybody being saved forever, no matter what they believe about God or Jesus or themselves, because God is love, right? Or maybe they uh, these false teachers avoid the trouble passages of the Bible that talk a bit more about God's right, just wrath against evil. And just difficult books like Judges, like we just went through, they just kind of bypass all of those things in an effort to create God in their own image rather than let himself disclose and say, this is who I am. Don't lie about me. Let me tell, people, let me tell my people and the people of the world who I am. And it's much better than what you're spinning. Ezekiel 13.10, this is a contemporary of Jeremiah. I don't have this on screen, but um, write this down if you want and check it out later. Ezekiel 13.10 says false teachers say peace when there is no peace. False teachers say peace when there is no peace. Everything's gonna be okay when it's not really. Or maybe it will eventually, but you know, it's not as easy as these, these false teachers are, are proclaiming. They, these types, have no sense of justice nor really any need for God to save them, but rather just a God who flatters them and gives them what they deserve. In their eyes, life and blessing, because in their eyes, we're essentially good, and we deserve it. It's kind of like uh, this whole drama between Hananiah and and God and and Jeremiah and the people of Israel. It's kind of like Hananiah is saying to a patient in a hospital with a really bad bacterial infection, you're going to be okay. Just think positive thoughts. And all the while, God's walking into the room behind him with the actual antibiotics that will save her life. He's got the real, he's got the real medicine. He has the vaccine. He has the antibiotics. He, ha- he has the medicine. And Hananiah is just saying this stupid stuff, like, you're going to be okay. When, no, you're dying. And God actually wants to heal. But you see how that, if, if his prophecy is believed, you see how that could, like, in this metaphor, deviate from true healing... Saying peace when there's a war isn't just wrong, it's stupid. And it's hateful because it leads people away from the truth and to the true fact that their house is on fire and they don't realize it. All right, so that's the first part. It didn't take sin seriously enough. And so it's wrong, but also deviating uh, from God's intent and what he wants to communicate here. So the second thing is it too quickly dismissed the role of suffering in the life of God's people, especially the life, as we look ahead from the story to the New Testament, especially in the life of his son. And this is where things get a little bit confusing, but just hang with me for a second. If you're here for Judges, we talked a lot about this. But remember, these prophecies serve the purpose of Jesus more than us. Exile is necessary then for Israel, not just due to their sin, though it is, but it exists for the sake of Jesus Christ who would later take on exile from God, his Father, for us. To end the endless cycle of exile and return that we read about almost endlessly in the Old Testament and to truly, finally, once and for all, make a way for sinners to get back to him. This is a major biblical, could-be-its-own-sermon lesson here. But but essentially, this is the gospel. If you're brand new to the Bible or, or don't know what the essence of Christianity is, this is the gospel in story form. God's son fulfills Israel's experiences. Major theme in the Bible. He's like the true Israelite, the ultimate person of God who comes to fulfill and complete and recapitulate. is another fancy word you read about in theology sometimes. Recapitulate everything that Israel does or experiences in the Old Testament but to do it for the nations, for us. In that, he died for us He experienced exile from God for us, separation from his Father when he was on the cross, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or like like the song we sing, why have you turned your face away? Or like it says elsewhere in the Bible, he became like Jerusalem, the city, in its destroyed state for us. So in the Old Testament, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. In the New Testament, Jesus, the true Jerusalem, the spiritual Jerusalem, was destroyed, and in that capacity, Jesus then, it's, like, it's kind of like he's absorbing or taking on all of the crap, all of the messes, all of the, just the terrible narratives and the, the dysfunction of the Old Testament. He's wearing them like a yoke or a robe around his neck when he dies. But one of those principal things is he bears our problem, exile, separation from God. He became human to do that for us so that it's dealt with and not just kind of shushed away. So with with all that said then, and with Jeremiah 28 and 29 in mind, this is the important two dots to connect here between these things. When we see prophecies in the Old Testament especially that downplay suffering and exile or lessen it or seek to deviate from it or go around it, it's essentially a backhanded way of downplaying the necessity of Christ's full suffering for us. That's what we're seeing in shadowy form. More clearly in the New Testament, this is where we see things like Peter saying to Jesus, you know, after Jesus says, "Well," after they say, you're the Christ, they believe, they understand, Jesus pulls them aside. You remember this in Matthew 16 and says, this is what it means for me to be the Messiah. I have to suffer terribly. I have to die at the hands of sinners unjustly and I need to be raised again. And what does Peter say right after that? Never, my Lord. This will never happen to you. It's exactly like that. Seeking to deviate Christ from the path of of Calvary, of suffering. or It's like like the devil himself in Matthew 4, who tempted Jesus with comfort and fame. The opposite of the road to the cross that he was bent on taking. When, When the devil tempts Jesus, it's all about comfort and fame. It's to take him away from the cross. Because the devil knows what's going on. Or Peter later in Gethsemane when he's being, Jesus is being arrested. And what does Peter do? In, in John 18, he pulls out the knife and cuts off the ear of one of the arresters. So he's trying to prevent Jesus from suffering. He's trying to prevent Jesus from experiencing exile for us, from God for us. He's trying to deviate the whole thing. Just like Hananiah. It's exactly the same thing. Just more clear. See, if Hananiah and Peter had their way, if Hananiah in the Old Testament and if Peter in the New Testament had their way, they would take away suffering and exile from God's people or, in the latter case, from God's ultimate person, Jesus Christ, God's Son. But without suffering, there's no salvation. And like God had harsh words for Hananiah in Jeremiah 28, calling him a liar, so does Jesus have harsh words for Peter in these instances When he says what to him? What does he call him? He says, get behind me, Satan. He calls him the prince of demons. You know, ouch, rough day for Peter. Peter has a lot of rough days in the Gospels. That was maybe principle. He calls him Satan because that was Satan's MO, to deviate Jesus from the cross because he knew he would win in that regard or win over sinners back to himself or kind of keep them in his demonic family. But Peter's just doing that as well. He's kind of full of this Satan-incited, idea that there is a version of Christianity that's crossless, crossless, bloodless, not as messy. He bought into it, just like many Christians do today, many people who are not yet Christians, that there is some version of Christianity that's just about being a good person and loving others. And there isn't. The essence is a bloody, horrific death of God's Son for us that paid the price for our sins or redeemed us, paid like a a, redemptive, a redemption price bought us back from slavery to sin and out of the devil's family into his own. So if Hananiah and Peter had their way, I mean, this is what would happen. And, and this is, sort of holds out a question for us. What gospel do you believe? Do you, do you really believe that it took the suffering and death of God's one and only son to earn your salvation from spiritual Babylon? Or do you believe there is a less messy way The differences are stark, and it's not an overstatement to say that your very life hangs in the balance of that question because it directly affects where you put your trust. Will it ultimately go to God, ultimately go to Jesus, ultimately go to his death and resurrection, or will it kind of go back to, uh, well, things aren't that bad, so let's just kind of get along and love each other, which is another way of saying you trust in yourself. And salvation comes then, like in Hananias' case, on our terms not god's terms and to say that salvation comes on our terms is just another way of saying saved by works it comes on our terms on what we do on what we think it's another way of saying like the whole bible says explicitly and implicitly saved by works but for god to say no it happens on my terms is for god to underline the idea you're saved by what i do in the world by who i send into the world on my timing my self-disclosure in other words, by grace, as a gift. So with, with that backdrop then, the question, what then does Jeremiah 29 11 mean in context? And I'll just start by saying, you know, against the backdrop of all that we just said, Jeremiah 29 11 actually means a lot more than the cheapened version of God just wants you to have a new car, you know, or whatever's behind curtain number three or something. Like that's, 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 a, that's a sick, cheapened version of this idea. It's not really about that at all. And you could say, well, it's kind of a timing thing. We as Christians believe in the redemption of the physical just in proper order. So we believe in a new earth. We believe in resurrected bodies. We believe in no more hunger or pain or shame bodily forever when Jesus comes back here and brings heaven here. That's our future. So uh, it's not saying physical is bad, spiritual is good. It's saying both are good. But God addresses these things in their proper order, the spiritual first as this main thing. So, to start to answer this question then, exactly what does this mean for us, Jeremiah 29, when the Bible talks about returning Israel from exile and prospering them and God having a plan for them, the meaning of that is ultimately Christ himself because there's no true way back to God outside of his shed blood. This is something we, we point out a lot here because the Bible does. The physical in the Bible, in the Old Testament, a lot of times, it's it's a generalization, but it's generally true. So, uh, in the Old Testament, a lot of times, points to the spiritual here. And so, if that's true, then prosperity or welfare means a type of spiritual welfare or spiritual prospering. And, you know, we could say, well, we see that in the New Testament, and we do, and we'll get there, but we actually see that right here in this immediate micro-context, right here in the passage. When you see God talking about a return... He talks about things like this. I will visit you after those 70 years in verse 10. And I will be found by you. And you'll pray to me. And you'll seek me. It, it implies a restored human heart. But I love this idea of being found by God. Even that alone. Isn't that a great image? Uh, the, the gospel is essentially like that feeling you get when you find a, a lost object you've lost for a couple of years that's valuable to you. You know that feeling you get? Like, oh, there it is. That's kind of like the gospel. Or maybe like your kid's toy in the supply vent in their bedroom. That for them, you just watch them jump head over heels over that little toy. And that's like, that's like the gospel. That's what it is. That's, that's, what we, that's what we should feel. And yet better than that, like Jesus says in the New Testament, when he talks about the one sheep in the 99, it's actually more true to say that the gospel is like God rejoicing over us when he finds us. So kind of both are happening, but in the New Testament, this whole thing's kind of flipped a bit. The ultimate version of this prophecy is, yeah, it's kind of like we find God and we rejoice, but what makes it better is the realization that behind the curtains of us feeling like we found God is actually a God who pursues us and finds us when we're a billion miles from him and just hell-bent, not even caring and indifferent to the cost, like the song we sing here says sometimes. And so, prosperity then means that. What's welfare? Believing in that kind of God. What's prosperity? Having that kind of God constantly pursuing us. What's welfare and prosperity daily? Waking up, taking a deep breath of fresh air, going outside, staring at the sun and saying, today's a day God's pursuing me. Not making promises to yourself that I will be a pursuer of God today. No, you won't. No, you won't. You'll fail a thousand times. Never make that promise. The gospel's not about you making vows to God. Stop it right now. Just end it. Just commit to ending that right now and believing every day that the essence of the gospel is about God loving you and pursuing you, having plans in this regard to prosper you spiritually. So then we see it in the New Testament too with things like this. It talks about spiritual riches. In Ephesians 1, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of of his grace which he lavished upon us. and 2 Corinthians 8 9, when it says, for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What's he saying there? Is he saying that that we do get new cars and big homes and and physical wealth and become Christians? Not at all. He's talking metaphorically. There's a type of spiritual wealth and a spiritual poverty that Jesus had, physically poor as well, but he became poor on the cross, is what he's saying here. His ultimate poverty was expressed when he bled for us and when he suffered pangs and torture and lashings and shame. He became that for us that we might become rich in his grace and have everything we will ever need. That's 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 a prosperous thing. And so essentially what this is saying, all of us together, is prosperity is to be saved from our sins. Prosperity is the hope of seeing God's smiling face one day, dining at his table, and walking freely on a new earth with him. That's prosperity. Isn't that better than a little bit of temporal health? Or wealth that that just ends up rotting and rusting away anyway? Or, Or like Jesus says, better to go into the new earth with him with one arm than to hell with two arms. It's kind of classic Jesus logic there, you know? It's like, or he says the same thing with eyes. Like, it's, it's better to suffer in this life and have one eye gouged out, but yet to enter into life and to actually be with God and to walk in a new earth with him than to go to hell with, with two eyes. And, and so the idea is suffering sometimes can be the thing that rouses us to his son's own suffering and our desperate need for him. And so, see, maybe the message then of Jeremiah 29 first is so little about us and so much about Jesus' sufferings and resurrection that it's actually kind of like God saying this. I intend to send and judge my son in your place and then prosper him from the dead, welfare him from the dead, and return him to me ascend send him to me for you that you might prosper spiritually with him. What if we believed this? What if we believed first that God had a plan for Jesus to rescue us before we started to get anxious or confused or maybe even arrogant over what his plan was for us? I'm an old uh, crew guy, uh, Campus Crusader for Christ at the U of M. Four years, awesome ministry. Uh, the Four Laws, you guys seen this track before? Now it's called, um, or it was, it changed when I was in college, which is forever ago now. Uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life. That's the first, that's the first thing. What's, what's the booklet called? Do you want to know God personally? No one knows this. Is this something else now? All right, it doesn't really matter anyway. Um, the, the first of the four things, just kind of a simple walk through the gospel, which is great. I'm not bashing it. I'm just saying it's, um, it's great. But the first thing was, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And, and it's not, I mean, you read that, and you, again, you can say, not that it's false prophecy in the same level as Hananiah here, but you can kind of say, well, yeah, but what does that mean? Right? God might intend you to suffer. God might take everything away from you so that he's the only thing left, right? God might just bring you into deep deep depression and anxiety because, you know, you're too high in yourself and he knows that, you know, or whatever. I mean, that happens, right? This is actual Christian living. If you're not a Christian yet, just know that you become a Christian, things probably get harder for you. But it's the best thing ever at the same time. So, yeah, it's another sermon. Another big question. But um, what if we believe this, though? What if the plan of God was more the plan of the ultimate Israel, the ultimate Jesus, who rescued us before we started to get anxious about what God's plan is for us. Remember, the Bible is for us, but not ultimately about us. The Bible is for us, but not ultimately about us. Very different, an important distinction to make as you read your Bibles indefinitely. God had a plan for his son, I mean, this, this is like, it's the difference between saying, oh, what does God want for me today? And, and stressing and, and basking in, God loves me. God had a plan to save me individually. God had a plan for this church to exist. It's a, much, it's a much happier thought anyway, but that's, again, feeling thing, that's fine. Remember though, God had a plan for his son to come into the world to end your exile from God. That's the gospel. By dying on a cross, then prospering him from the dead for us and ascending to return to him. And that's what the whole Bible is about, including Jeremiah 29. This is a prophecy and a promise. And like 2 Corinthians 1 something says that all the promises of God and prophecies find their yes in Christ. Is Jeremiah 29 11 an exception to that? Does it bypass Jesus to just apply to us individually? And what a cheapened version there's such a better a better Christ, a better hope here, a better storyline to see uh, than just to say in a graduation announcement that God knows what my job's going to be someday. Which I guess is true, and it's not wrong. And if you've done that in your grad announcement things, I hope that's not weird, but it had to be said. Um, don't erase it, uh, but just dial it up a bit, you know. Yeah, God knows what your job's going to be. Yeah, he has a plan for you, but that's not the heart of Christianity. It's certainly not what Jeremiah 29-11 is saying. That's an implication, implication, individual implication. But not the heart of what the part is in relation to the whole. It actually means Christ for you. It means Jesus for you. It means, like, this is objective to us. Like, we don't sit here and say, yeah, we can really empathize with what Israel went through in 586 B.C. Like, we were there. We can feel that and smell that. And, yeah, I totally know what Babylon is like and all the architecture. and Like, none of us do. Like, that's objective to us. So is the ultimate point of this. It's objective to you. Like Jesus' death and resurrection is, objective to you. You don't know what it's like to save the world from its sins. nor do I. Because we didn't. Right? It's objective. It's out there. Just like like this original prophecy. And so we we hear about it. We celebrate it. We look to it and we say, that was done over there by God for me. You see the, the difference Oh, it's just so good. It's like, well, all right, let, let me just wrap up here. All right, so, so, so God had a plan. This, this, the order is really important here. Well, Let, let me just start by saying this. Be really careful with this verse. Enjoy it. Be careful with any verse you read. This is not just about Jeremiah twenty eleven, but be careful with this verse. Don't make it too much about you too quickly. This is about Christ. It's more about him than it is than it is. Um, about our specific circumstances. And, and so it's what, what I love about this passage um, is, is it tells us about Christ's death and his prosperous resurrection, but it also tells us about who we are. You know, so if it's first about God having a plan for Christ, like we've been saying, then, and this is a cool piece too, we didn't talk a lot about this today, but the second part, God has a plan for his church. If we're going to make it um, about us, and it is partly about us, implications, Make it more about the plural than the singular first. So I'd say secondarily, it's about the church. God having a plan for the church than about us individually every day. And That's tertiary, that's third, we'll get to that. But secondly, it's about us. And I think, isn't that an interesting, at least, way of thinking about this? And we know this because, again, the plural is used. We miss this in English. The Hebrew plural and second person is used. But um, second person plural. Point is, God has a plan for his people to together... Be saved and together bask in his love. And, and to together return. And we see that in Israel's experiences, right? And this is this is a, an indictment against individualism in the church. Because you never see one Israelite return. And in, in Christianity, when one Christian returns to God for the gospel, they instantly join a church. Instantly. And so every day, this is this is this takes work and intentionality for us as a church know that your leaders here care deeply about this and we're trying to guide and steer this ship a little bit, but we need everybody in this to be thinking corporately, to be thinking like together as a family uh, about this so that the commands like, like this, this gospel command really is for us together. And so, so then the question isn't just about, well, you know, how does God love me every day, but how is he together loving us and how can I encourage a Christian in that? How can it be a voice piece, like a prophetic voice piece to, hey, good news. There's no more separation between God and you because of what Jesus did. He bled for that. He purchased that. He fought for that. God never loses our lives. That's secondary. Third is God has a plan for you. This is the tertiary side. We can affirm this, but just on a third level. God does have a plan for us individually, but in light of those greater things. And the order is crucial. Never flip that around. Never flip it around. It's not what God intended, it's not what it means. We, we can fool ourselves into thinking that it does. We can just, we can read others who say it. Uh, it just doesn't, in context it clearly doesn't. And In the greater context of the whole Bible, it's not the best news anyway. It's not what we really, what we really need, uh, even though there's partial truth in it. And so just to affirm that, when I say that this tells us who we are, um, and I'll end kind of coming back to this spiritual riches idea, I know a lot of you are suffering deeply right now because you've told us. Uh, I'd say it's, uh, I didn't ask you, Spence, if what you thought about this, but I think it's probably like one of the bigger seasons of suffering maybe we've ever had, kind of just in terms of the amount of people we know, like so many of you just going through so much stuff. Um, All of us are, but I mean just big stuff. And um, So when we suffer deeply and we read, God wants to prosper me. See, bad theology will hurt you deeply. Because you'll think God doesn't love you. You just will. If you think that God wants to take your suffering away instantly, like, and if he doesn't, what are you, where are you going to go? It, it, it will hurt you, and you'll question everything. And you'll think he hates you. And you'll think, if I just have more faith, God, God will do it. It's terrible theology. Terrible theology. You know. And so the, the reality is, if our riches are spiritual, then guys, all of you, Christians in the room, and those of you who are considering this, this can be your reality too, but to Christians in the room, you, this is what this says, you are wealthy in grace. Wealthy. You have everything you'll ever need to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. That's in 1 Peter 1, I think, the very beginning of that letter. Everything you'll ever need. Ever. That's, a wealth, that's, a, that's wealth imagery, right? Like when you say you have everything you'll ever need, we're speaking of wealth in that moment. The Bible uses that spiritually to talk about our lives as Christians. Your royalty, your sons and daughters, your co-heirs with Jesus Christ. I mean, all, all this is wealth language. So it's a call to believe in him and trust. He will never, ever forget you or leave you or forsake you. That's one of the more commonly repeated promises in the whole Bible. If you believe in the gospel, if you're one of his children, he will never, if you're his bride, part of his bride, who hates divorce, so he'll never divorce us. If, if we never ever, or if we, if we believe that he never ever forgets us or leaves us or forsakes us, we're rich. Think of Acts 14 here, I'll uh, end with this. Uh, Paul in the New Testament was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations or many sufferings, we must enter the kingdom of God. Maybe not a teaching you hear, you know, in a comfortable American church a lot, but you should. This is in the Bible. What's What he's saying to Christians is who are who are suffering, who are being persecuted, who have big questions maybe of, is God in this? Are churches failing? We're being hated? People are dying? And, and what Paul is saying, actually, that's normative. Through many tribulations and sufferings, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, here's a big question then. Does this verse fit with your understanding of Jeremiah 29, 11? Or does it contradict? The way it can fit is if we understand prosperity wrapped up with Jesus first and then us spiritually. Otherwise, this doesn't fit. It's a contradiction. <laughs> like, through many tribulations, what are you talking about? God just wants to prosper his kids with stuff. But no. If it's the stuff of, of his love, then yes, but not, but not stuff. You know, stuff can be a gift. It can be a good thing. It's fine. But that's not what prosperity and welfare biblically ultimately gets at. These are Christians who are suffering and yet prospering in Christ more than the richest of the rich of their day. And so it is for us. We are rich when we know that God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross to end our exile from him. And here's the gospel question. Do you believe it today? Or... Are you looking elsewhere for prosperity because Jesus just is not enough to you? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage, uh, helping us, God, to get a better, maybe more well-rounded view in some capacity, to see you in it, because all Scripture is about you. Not a little bit of it, not a third, not a half, not even three-quarter, but all of it is about the Son and the plan of God to prosper him after his suffering uh, to humble him through death and to exalt him through his resurrection as a human being, but also his one and only beloved son, that he might become a forerunner of our experience, dying for our sin, but also a forerunner of our own resurrected, spiritual resurrection experience now, but our bodily resurrection experience, which we all still earnestly wait for as believers. So um, God, prosper us. Help us to feel spiritually wealthy. That's, that's a, that's a I know, big prayer for my life, I know right now, but for all of us who are deeply suffering, help us still to feel like we have everything, that it's well with our soul. It's well with our soul because the sin of this, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. True spiritual wealth that can write that hymn or can say those words um, amidst intense suffering only comes from the, the recognition that we have everything we possibly need in Christ, and so we can weather all storms, all sufferings, everything, especially in community in the church, because it's where you are. In your name we pray it all. Amen.